Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Happy Sunday or whichever day you're watching or listening to the show. As lockdown gradually eases, uh, mayhem continues. Uh, there was a lot to talk about today. Uh, general corruption sleaze uh, at the heart of power. And we've got some great guests to actually talk about what this all means, what's actually happening. A lot of politics, particularly in the political lobby, lobby journalists, reduce what happens to a psychodrama. It's like an episode of EastEnders. We're going to try and avoid doing that, especially avoiding this being the Dominic Cummings show, which all too often is what this becomes. Now, what is going on? Let's just give a gist, a flavour of some of the things we're going to talk about. And then we've got wider themes. We're going to look at the big picture. So you've got Dominic Cummings, who, to be fair, is one of the most unpopular figures in the country, but he claims there was an unethical, foolish, possibly illegal plan to get Tory donors to secretly fund the refurbishment of Boris Johnson's flat, who possibly got a loan from a Tory donor. Uh, Liz Truss, the cabinet minister, was pretty cagey when asked about that uh, on the Sunday broadcasts. Now, Cummings is talking about a dossier, and I think this is particularly important, uh, which could damn Boris Johnson over delayed November lockdown, which we'll talk about later. But if you remember, uh, Sage on the 21st of September called for a circuit break or lockdown in order to avoid catastrophe. That break, that, that circuit breaker didn't take place. Cases surged, so did deaths. A new variant, of course, was allowed uh, to enter uh, the wider circulation, which was always the risk as cases multiplied. Um, and more people died in the second wave than died in the first wave. Now, Cummings himself is reportedly privately said to be worried about him going to prison because of vote leave and things that went on in government. Boris Johnson's special envoy to the Gulf, a close ally, Lord Lister, resigned after scrutiny of his private sector interests. Now, he helped award £4 billion in property deals for firms he went to work for, brokered a property deal while paid by both buyer and seller. Um, he owns his shares in companies that won a million quid in government and NHS contracts since he joined number 10. We've had, of course, uh, the former uh, Prime Minister, David Cameron, uh, who is, has done his very best to out-disgrace uh, his predecessor, Tony Blair, uh, lobbying ministers over the now-collapsed Greensill, Lord Dyson lobbying Boris Johnson, massive questions over contracts for PPE and other COVID-19 contracts. That is a lot a stench of sleaze and indeed corruption. And actually, according to today's polling, 40% of us think that the Conservatives are corrupt. There's a bit of a caveat there because the same poll gives the Tories an 11-point lead, which raises the question, have people basically just factored this in? Then they voted for Boris Johnson. They, they knew what they were getting themselves into without being a bit resigned to this um, and a bit defeatist. Uh, has this, you know, is this something which the electorate have just taken as read? We'll be talking about that later on. But what's really important about this, other than, you know, moving away from psychodrama and indeed party politics, is our democracy. It's about the nature of our democracy. It's about protecting 
our democracy, a democracy in which the people uh, are supposed to be sovereign um, uh, and in which private interests should not be able to buy influence based on their wealth. Now, of course, we know that's what happens, but we're going to talk about that in detail and also what we can do about it. How can we actually take on corruption, sleaze, and save our democracy? So we've got a lot to talk about today with two great guests. For those supporting the podcast and the channel through Patreon, we really appreciate it. You help decide what we talk about, the subjects we go into, the people we talk uh, to. Last week, Robbie, uh, Robert Lindsay, Jamie Carragher, very eclectic. Next week, we're talking to Lord Buckethead. But also, we're going to Hartlepool. Going to Hartlepool tomorrow. We're doing a documentary in Hartlepool about what's going on in that community. You've made that possible. Uh, I have had a haircut, as people are noting. Uh, that was, I think, a looming national catastrophe, which has finally been dealt with, so at least as that. Right. Okay. That's enough of me. Let's bring in our two first brilliant guests. Uh, Tamazin Cave, who's co-author of A Quiet Word and a brilliant campaigner, and Daniel Bruce, who is the chief executive of Transparency International. Hello. How are you both doing? Hello. So, where to begin? I just want your general take on some of the things I just spoke about, because there was a lot, there was a lot, there was a lot going on there. Daniel, what do you think? What's your your general uh, overview, your your general take on what is currently going on and obviously is on the front of several newspapers? Mm, I think you're very wise to try and avoid the psychodrama um, that we've inevitably seem to have sort of stumbled and and tripped into over the last few weeks. And, you know, I actually am struggling to remember everything that's happened in the last seven days uh, in terms of the various elements of the lobbying scandal related to Greensill, the Dyson text messages that you've mentioned. We came out with a big report on Thursday into PPE procurement and corruption red flags uh, in that area, which I'm sure we'll go into. And then we've seen the whole Downing Street flat business. And I think the risk that we have in a situation like this is that the other thing I've lost count of Uh, in addition to the specific allegations in specific areas, is how many inquiries have now been set up or how many inquiries have now been called for and into what and by whom and with what terms of reference and so on and so forth and how long are they going to take to report. And inquiries are necessary, uh, of course, a lot of the time. Um, But also we've now got this very fragmented picture around all of these kind of bitty allegations and issues. And I think what needs to happen is we need to be able to take a great big step back from all of that and look at what evidence and history and research already tells us about what is wrong with the system when it comes to our defences against corruption, when it comes to the preservation of integrity in public life. And, you know, I would contend, Transparency International would contend that we we know what could be done uh, already. What is missing at the minute, it would seem, is the political will to make some of those changes happen. Tamsin, what's your what's your general take? Um, yeah, it's it's quite hard to keep up with all this. Uh, I've uh, had, um, I mean, it's literally daily, and there's something new. But if you follow this kind of story, so lobbying um, lobbying stories around sort of influence and persuasion, um, these have been going on for months and uh, all throughout the Johnson government. Um, and I I don't know, I'm slightly more optimistic. Um, as somebody who's kind of campaigned for transparency and lobbying for the best part of a decade, um, 
I'm I'm really optimistic because I think what these are doing are these are um, giving us glimpses of how the world inside Westminster and Whitehall actually works on a daily basis. So rather than kind of hone in on um, the particular, and I think this is important, I think some of the inquiries will be revealing, particularly into the Greensill affair. Um, but I think what they show us is that there is a culture within uh Westminster and um, Whitehall, which is entirely at odds with our perception of what our government should be doing and how it should be acting. And so the more windows that are opened onto that, the more we get a kind of a clear understanding of, yes, there is there is something going on in there that normalises this behaviour, because I guarantee that David Cameron didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He saw his former colleagues that, you know, when he was in government, and they're all working in lobbying agencies now, um, or they're working for corporations. And he thought, well, I'm going to get on that train because it's just normal behaviour, the kind of activity that he was engaged in. So I I am optimistic that we are getting a much better public understanding. And I think the public understood largely what, you know, that we've been evicted from decision making and replaced by um, private, narrow, uh, mainly corporate interests. But I think um, the more we understand, I mean, it'd be better if instead of having all these little spotlights put on it, you had a bloody great floodlight and we could actually just see the whole lot. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's an understanding of the, the sort of disconnect between what goes on in government and what we perceive government is for, that I think is, um, I, you know, I always think it's good. So, I mean, just... Talking about, you, you raised, obviously, David Cameron lobbying, Greensill. We've had Lord Dyson. I mean, Daniel, I suppose, I mean, it's tricky kind of without feeding that sense of resignation I spoke about before. I mean, how, you know, isn't that just something which happens a lot, that this happens under all governments of all stripes? You get powerful rich people with influence uh, who are well connected, who use their wealth, influence, and connections to exert influence over government. So, actually, is what happened with David Cameron and, for example, Lord Dyson stuff? Is there anything new about it? But equally, that that itself should be damning, surely, because that is a damning indictment of a democracy if that kind of thing is so commonplace. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the, the first thing to say is, yeah, this has touched parties of all stripes down the decades in, in different ways in, in one way or another. And, you know, let's not forget that, you know, up in Liverpool at the minute, uh, we've seen uh, a significant uh, incident around alleged uh, corruption uh, in bribery and lo local planning uh, control, for example, that um, led to the the, uh, the mayor being arrested. And, and you know, there's, there's lots to learn from that affair. So, and the risk with the kind of psychodrama is that this all becomes very politicised very quickly, but you're absolutely right. This is something which has spanned multiple governments over multiple parliaments, and there have been multiple missed opportunities to make some changes that would make a difference. And the problem is that, you know, the um, I think we counted in the region of uh, 25 to 30 lobbying related scandals over the last decade or so, where the lobbying activity had not been caught by the statutory register of consultant lobbyists. So that shows you that there is a, a, a gaping hole in the system for the for the regulation of this area of activity for the regulation of that 
uh, culture, which I think is 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 an absolutely key key point. So actually, if the the kind of the norms around it are going to lead to a culture where the, the loopholes are consistently, you know, certain behaviours fall through the cracks, then we've got to plug those loopholes. And I think one of the most striking things problems that we have with the, the lobbying oversight today is that the register that wasn't is in place that was introduced by David Cameron himself um, only refers to consultant lobbyists. Now, 90% of lobbying professionals work on the payroll of the organisations that they are lobbying for. So if you've got a system that is only set up to regulate 10% of the, the industry that's doing the lobbying, then of course, stuff's going to fall between the, the cracks, whether it's purposeful, whether it's culture, whether it's just kind of standards and norms that have been established. So you've, you've, the evidence is telling us we've got to tighten up the system. Tamazin, I mean, you you spent so many years looking at lobbying, how it works, how it operates. Do you just want to give us a flavour of, of of how what you know how big an industry it is, uh, and and how it exerts influence in position in 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 the world of politics? Yeah. Okay. So if you start from the beginning, which is lobbying uh, in and of itself, in theory, is not a bad thing. I'm a lobbyist, or I was a lobbyist. I was lobbying for lobbying transparency regulations. Um, and it basically is any act that is trying to influence the decisions of government. So when you write to your MP, you are trying to influence the decisions of government um, and everybody should be able to do it because, you know, you want the government to listen to outside interests. It's what happens in practice that is the problem in that we have a two billion pounds, roughly, roughly, um, that's the scale of it. We don't really know, but um, two billion pounds influence industry, which is entirely full of political insiders that give mainly corporations and foreign governments, that's, that's where the money comes from, um, give them access to politicians uh, to the, such an extent that they make decisions entirely in the narrow interest of uh, whoever's paying. Um, and there are various, there's nothing mystical about how lobbying works. It's, um, there is a set of tools and it is the manipulation of the media and getting these kind of third party spokesmen out into the press and, you know, whether it's surrounding our politicians with the messages that you want them to hear and excluding everybody else. So there's a lot of kind of oppo kind of anti campaigner stuff that the industry does as well. But they, they effectively have managed to rig the system to such an extent that the, that the public interest has been largely evicted from decision making. Now, you talked about the um, well, you talked about the statutory register of lobbyists and the failings of it. It was entirely designed to fail. So for 10 years, I campaigned for, it's a very small step. It's a transparency measure, but one that they have in lots of other countries around the world. And effectively, this register should, it, it would require lobbyists on a quarterly basis to say who they are, who they're lobbying for, whom they're meeting in government and what they're seeking to influence. So David Cameron would have to say, I'm David Cameron former prime minister, I'm lobbying for Greensill, I am meeting Rishi Sunak, and I'm trying to get loads of you know, access to this COVID lending scheme. And then you, what it means is that you can see. So effectively, all it does is it is it, we know what's going on inside these rooms. The rooms are secret at the moment. Lobbying is best done, is most effective when nobody can watch what's happening. Because if you're in the room, then you suddenly go, well, hang on a sec, that, well, that benefits that business, but it's not very good for all the workers or it's not very good for the environment or whatever it, whatever it is. So you want to do it in secret. And all it does is it says, right, you're in the room, open the curtains a little bit, let us see what's going on in the room and then we can discuss it. Because, And I think the most telling thing was when we were lobbying for this statutory register, 
they deliberately, and, and it was an absolute deliberate act, they went through the ho- entire rigmarole of legislating to bring in what was effectively a pretend register to say that they ticked the box. And when it went through Parliament, I mean, the, 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 it's worth going back and reading Hansard and looking at the debates because MPs knew this and they told them. I mean, it was called a dog's Brexit breakfast. And, you know, I mean, that's it, it was roundly kind of condemned when it went through. Um, and they brought it in in order to kind of make the problem go away. But it obviously hasn't and it won't because we keep getting these scandals. But I think the most telling thing is the fact that they effectively, by bringing in rubbish, nonsense, pretend regulation, is they're saying, do you know what? We don't want to open the curtains and you're not allowed to see into the room. And I think it's that act of kind of denying people um, a meaningful way of engaging in politics because... I it's so much more than who texted who and, you know, the wallpaper of David Cameron's new flat. And I was asked on the radio the other day about, you know, I was like outraged about um, Dyson's texts. And I'm not outraged about that, but I am absolutely full of rage about the things that matter. The things like we are not going to get action on climate whilst lobbyists are the, for the oil and gas industry are in this closed room with our governments or on housing policy or you know the NHS is going to continue to be opened up to the private sector whilst these are all secret um, and that's what I feel rage about is, is the fact that lobbying is this kind of I sort of describe it as a gateway issue unless you can tackle lobbying you aren't going to tackle all the other things that need tackling where they have been, these issues have been entirely dominated to, um, by these narrow, mainly corporate interests. There you go, rant over. Great rant. We lo- I love a rant, a very yes. eloquent rant of that. Daniel, before I bring in the COVID report, which Transparency International has, has brilliantly worked on, I mean, just tell us a bit in terms of, because Transparency looks at very broad rate UK international um, of, of issues of corruption. And I suppose in terms of, you know, we're talking about lobbying, but there's the revolving door, there's uh, party donors who end up in the House of Lords. Do you just want to tell us some of those elements of, of, of this story, if you like, and, and, and how they work in modern Britain? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, 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 so the lobbying piece is, is part of this, this, this kind of fragmented puzzle as what I've as I said, described as our, our defences against corruption, the safeguards for the, the preservation of public integrity. Um, and we've got a way to go in the UK at the minute. And there are other similar democracies, places like Canada, Ireland and the US, who are doing better than us in many areas in terms of the instruments that they've, they've, they've got in place. I think we have a particularly concerning situation around the oversight of the ministerial code at the moment. For example, the independent advisor on the code quit at the end of last year after the Pretty Patel investigation. That person has not been replaced. The job has not been advertised. As a result, declarations of ministerial interests have not been released for months on end. It is a system which uh, essentially is enacted at the uh, the will of the prime minister of the day. Um, it is entirely in the gift of the executive how it is used and we believe that that needs to be changed and it needs to be put on a statutory footing and there need to be a ladder of sanctions uh, available to an independent autonomous body that oversees parliamentary integrity. Um, let's look at another area. Freedom of information is really important for transparency and accountability of government. We have legislation uh, which came in place uh, just o- came into place just over 20 years ago um, and since then 
there has been a steady decline in the amount of freedom of information requests which are granted at all or in full compared to uh, a decade ago. Regulation of business appointments. We've heard a lot about ACOBA, Lord um, Pickles regulator, in the last few weeks. And again, you know, that's generated a lot of sort of colour and, and anger around the Greensill allegations. But all that ACOBA can do is issue a strongly worded letter um, if, it, if it finds any misconduct. So there are multiple bits of the defences and the safeguards that need clear and obvious improvements. I could go on, but uh, you, you, get, you get the general picture. So it's, you know, it's, it's integrity, it's business appointments, it's lobbying, it's political donations, and so on and, and so forth. Um, and all of these little fragmented bits all need considerable work to move them forward. And what I'm getting a little bit kind of fatigued with is that every time we get the latest bit of this puzzle comes out, um, a government... Um, a spokesperson will sort of say, okay, well, we have no plans to change this at this point in time. Well, why? Because the evidence is saying that you need to. Um, and, you know, we've got to move the conversation beyond that. Yeah, Tamsin, before I was going to bring up PPE, but I mean, what should, because you, you've looked at various aspects, not just lobbying. So how does it all fit together in terms of revolving door, which I know is something you're interested in? Uh, yeah, the revolving door. Um, uh, this is, I mean, the, if you again come back to lobbying not being a kind of a mystical, mythical, kind of magical activity, the revolving door is is a technique. So if you are a business and you want to, I don't know, have a get a tax break or a NHS contract, or normally lobbyists lobby for one or two reasons. They say the government presents a risk to their business, so that could be regulation or whatever, or it represents an opportunity, so that could be a massive contract or a tax break or whatever it is. So if you are, um, uh, yeah, if if you want to influence government, the I mean, it, it's kind of human nature. What you need is somebody who knows government and you know the people in government. So the quickest way to shortcut that is to hire somebody who's just come out of government. So that's why you get the lobbying industry, which is entirely full of special advisors, former ministers, uh, senior civil servants, anybody who's um, basically been in government and has the contacts like David Cameron and can just phone them up. But it's not, I mean, it's, you, you've got, I looked at the, there is a, voluntary register of lobbyists and I looked at it the other day and there's one particular firm that employs it's got Amber Rudd it's got Oliver Letwin and it's got one of the other baldy men I think it's uh William Haig uh is and it, and it employs these three heavyweights you think of the access that they could give um to the corporate clients of Tenio which most of which we uh don't know so the revolving door is just a strategy for you know kind of ad ad as the late Paul Flynn MP said you know it's advantaging the already advantaged um uh uh so yeah I mean that's that's kind of how it works I think in terms of I mean I I like the way that uh, TI is just so forensically into the detail but I think it's kind of um important to kind of uh think of other ways that that this can be combated and sometimes i give i give talks on on corporate lobbyists and i will sit and talk to people for an hour and we get to the end of the talk and physically everybody's done that and they're just you know you, you basically say to people there is this huge great goliath there and it's massive and it's corrupting our politics and you can't really do anything about it. But I've had a really privileged position in that I go and sit in lots of meetings where lobbyists are present and you hear about how they talk and the 
threats that they face. And the bit that never gets told is the fact that lobbyists, they, they're not all powerful and there are some things that we can do. And the one thing that, that I've learned is that they, they hate and the threat that, that it, the biggest threat is when people gather together. So protest, organized campaign groups, things like that. Um, and I think what sometimes is missing in all this conversation, I wanted to get it in before we stopped, is that that there is an awful lot of power that the pe- that people have by coming together and shouting loudly. So ignore Pretty Patel, get out on the streets, that kind of thing. Um, but I just wanted, yeah, I just, we can talk about corporate lobbying and it seems kind of all powerful. And when you sit in the room with them, I remember when Occupy was on, you know, they were they were absolutely shitting themselves basically because uh there was uh yeah all the tax haven crowd and whatever they were like this isn't funny anymore the telegraph are talking about tax avoidance and this isn't funny so they're they're not all powerful that's yeah kind of what i want to say so daniel i just want to ask you about this report which you've done on transparency international on uh pp procurement and there's been a lot about this in certain newspapers over the last few weeks but this really goes into great detail you've identified 73 contracts more that worth more than uh, 3.7 billion pounds that raise one or more threat uh, red flags for possible corruption 24 contracts worth 1.6 billion awarded to those with known political connections to the conservative party so you want to talk us through a bit yeah thanks for the the opportunity for for the plug uh the report is called track and trace uh it's very extensive you'll find it on the transparency international uk uh website uh, and it's a really striking read it's a forensic analysis of a thousand contracts 18 billion pounds uh, we believe it is the most comprehensive study of public procurement uh, in the uk uh, during the covid 19 crisis um so far and and the methodology here is really very straight straightforward we are objectively, dispassionately analysing uh, all of these contracts, those that are available, because there have been some serious issues with uh, late reporting of contracts, which has been well publicised. And we've looked at those contracts again against well-established uh, red flags for possible uh, corruption or conflict of interest. Uh, red flags are not created by us, but by the likes of the, the OECD. And, and we come up with this figure that um, 20% of that £18 billion pound uh, spend we feel had vulnerability to corruption. I should stress we're not saying that they were corruptly awarded. That's why we are saying that they need further um, investigation. And that shouldn't be controversial on the basis of this um, uh, objective uh, piece of research based on um, open source data. The other very significant finding that we do have is that the so-called VIP lane, um, which many of your viewers will have heard about, which was first identified by the National Audit Office at the end of last year, um, this kind of contract triaging system that was set up by the government. So it stopped doing open public procurement, it used the emergency legislation, and then it set up this VIP lane so that friends and contacts uh, of ministers, of MPs, ostensibly of uh, all parties and uh, political strikes could submit their uh, referrals into the VIP lane um, for a bit of pre-triaging. What we find is that the VIP lane wasn't widely advertised and known about um, across the House, um, across the civil service in the way that it should have been and and via the normal channels. And when you analyse the contracts that went through that and were successful, it does appear to be a significant inherent bias towards a politically connected contractors connected to the party of government. Now, the government response to that has been, well, all contracts went through the normal eight-step due diligence process and the, the system was widely advertised. It's really important to remember that the eight-step process came after the triaging 
after the referrals um, and we could not find the evidence um, that the VIP lane was widely advertised. So we continue to call for today, today for full transparency over who knew what about it and when does it still exist? If so, why? And it needs to be shut down and we need to get back to proper public procurement uh, and open standards of contracting in order to ensure that public money is spent wisely and well. And Daniel, I know you've got to go. So just finally, what do we do about all of this based on what's happened in the last few weeks? What are the kind of key demands you'd like people to be organising around? So I think there are some potentially positive recommendations in the government's green paper on procurement. There is some learning which comes through that. So, you know, groups like us who get into the sort of technical weeds around this will continue to push forward and say, actually, you know, this really matters. This is, we're talking about eye-watering amounts of public money here. We're all going to pick up the tab for this in our taxes over the coming years. This isn't some weird, obscure thing. And it isn't, I must stress, this, is, this cannot be made a mutually exclusive debate between the need to save lives in an emergency and the need to spend money quickly. Ukraine and Colombia were publishing their contracts within uh, 24 hours, whereas some of ours are more than 100 days late um, against the deadline. Sweden massively increased contracting and procurement transparency at the height of the pandemic. So it didn't have to be um, this way. And I think the most important important thing is that we have full and frank analysis, audit and lessons learned from how these massive amounts of money were spent during the crisis and have that full accountability retrospectively for what has happened over the last year, as well as ensuring that actually you put in place the mechanisms to ensure that, heaven forbid, if we end up on a crisis of this scale again, that we wouldn't see the same the same sort of risks and, and challenges to, to public spending that we have done. And that's the key bit. There has to be accountability for what's happened. It's not just about making sure that we get it right again next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I, I want to bring in Tamazin just to say what, what you think should happen next, but I'll let Daniel go because I know you've got to skip off so thank you so much for joining us it was really really good to have your insight and to talk about that brilliant report track and trace which people should look up download read digest and act upon but i really appreciate it daniel so i'll speak to you soon thank you pleasure being here thanks bye-bye yes thank you Tamazin. yeah so just be great to hear what are the kind of demands that people should be organizing around um well um i mean the really easy one but it is a really small step is uh, get a decent register of lobbyists which is the driest thing to campaign around uh having done it but it is it's this getting the flipping curtains open so we can see into the room and it it means that we will have a better public debate um 
around. Sorry, my dog has just arrived on my. Oh, I know. <laughs> what's the dog? What's the? What's he called? She Fizz. Um, she's just a. If I don't hold her, she'll bark. Anyway, um, so I think a st- statutory register of lobbyists, a decent one, a proper one, uh, is a must-have. Uh, they have them all over the world. There's absolutely no reason. Um, and actually now quite a lot of the lobbying industry is asking for a proper one as well. Um, it's got to include all the lawyers. It's got to include the management consultancies um, yeah, and anybody working in-house like Cameron. But um, beyond that, I think, I mean, that is a that is about scrutiny. But I think keep following these stories and keep unearthing these stories. Byline's doing some really good stuff. Navarra talk about it. There's um, various people in the press and I really enjoyed the, um, was it last week where you had Robert and uh, Gabriel on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. The, the journalists. I mean, it, the press scrutiny is absolutely key. The problem is that the lobbying industry is is heavily kind of intertwined with the, with the media so you will they're all in the same room together a lot of them and lobbyists are very good sources of information for journalists and uh, so there's this kind of relationship there that kind of predisposes journalists not to write about what are effectively pretty good political sources um but so scrutiny and then the final thing i think is just not to be naive about um not that anybody would think that this is just a problem confined to the Tory party. Um, but it is, I mean, it's it, lobbyists basically uh, are doing it for very practical reasons. Lobbying is a way of, another way of making money for their clients. So whether it's a tax break or a contract or whatever it is, and they don't really care who is in government. And I will get to the exception in a minute. They don't really care who's in government. So they will at the moment be, and they are surrounding Starmer. Um, and he has quite a lot of lobbyists in his team. Manderson's come back on board. I notice he runs a firm. Um, but they will be targeting Labour in order for Labour to uh, give them what they want and make sure that Labour is on side. The exception, obviously, was Jeremy Corbyn. And it was quite funny reading the lobbying press when uh, he was around because they were, I mean, they were in bits because they didn't know him. Nobody had spent years making tea for him and schmoozing him and blah, 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 apart from the unions, uh, obviously, uh, who are also lobbyists. But um, the commercial lobbying industry didn't know him from Adam. So they were they were like, Jesus, what do we do? How do we actually get to this guy? Because we haven't spent years cultivating the contacts with him and anybody else, you know, anybody who's done his photocopying. So... Um, just be mindful that um, as, you know, they're, they're putting a lot of effort into influencing the Johnson government. At the same time, they will be uh, schmoozing the Labour Party. Tamazin, thank you so, so much. You are That's brilliant so as ever. Your work, for those who haven't followed Tamazin's work, is absolutely superb. i drawn on it for my last book. I interviewed you for The Establishment, uh, which was, oh my word, about seven, eight years ago. Wow. It was. The- it's been a long few years, but uh, it's always great to be able to draw on your fantastic expertise. So thank you for joining us on a Sunday, and uh, I look forward to seeing you maybe in real life at some point. Yeah, God, thanks, right. and lots of love to the dog as well. Cheers, bye. See you later. Cheers. Uh, they were both fantastic, so really chuffed to have them both. I'm going to bring in now uh, the brilliant journalist. He's he's very 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 good, and you should follow his work immediately. He's Adam Bienkov uh, from Business Insider. Hello, mate. How are you doing? All right, how are you doing? 
in a shed. That's where your similarities begin and end with David Cameron. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, just to kick... I mean, like, Dominic Cummings' psychodrama, in my head, I kind of thought, avoid. What's your general take on it? That's the whole Cummings thing at the moment. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've all just got to be careful when talking about these kind of stories uh, about Dominic Cummings, because I think some of the things that he raised in his blog on Friday were quite significant. Um, the allegations about Boris Johnson's uh, attempt to use Conservative Party donors to pay for the renovation of his Downing Street residence, they are, they are very serious. Um, and he potentially does have some more serious allegations about the Prime Minister's actions around lockdown last year. So I think those are significant, but I think there's, there is always a danger when Cummings gets involved in a story that it goes from being a very, storious, very serious story about sort of government incompetence or cronyism uh, into this kind of psychodrama or soap opera about who Boris Johnson does and doesn't get on with in Downing Street, um, who Dominic Cummings didn't get on with, uh, Boris Johnson's fiance, fiance and God help us, their dog, you know. And these are the kind of issues that it kind of goes from being a very serious, substantive uh, story about uh, government procurement to being uh, something more more of a kind of soap opera, more about personality. And I think there is a, this is something that, and there, you know, a lot of these, these stories have come out from the work of great journalists, many of whom are, are in the lobby, but it's fair to say that there was a definite spike in interest among the British press on Friday as soon as Dominic Cummings got involved and lots more people are writing about it now than they, they were before. But the focus tends to be more on this kind of, I mean, you've seen that if you look at Sunday papers today, it's full of sort of briefings in between Downing Street and Cummings and about that it's more kind of personality focused than it is on the actual substance of the story. I mean, I did think what was particularly significant was about what happened last autumn. Um, so the 21st of September, Sage uh, declared that, uh, well, they favoured a circuit breaker lockdown in order to avoid catastrophic consequences. And of course, uh, we did have a delayed lockdown in November, but after cases had been allowed to soar and deaths with them, and scientists had warned, despite the fact Dino Harding and others said a new variant wasn't predictive. Well, actually, it was made repeatedly clear by scientists that if you allow a virus to widely circulate, the odds of a new variant emerging obviously increases, which is what's happened not just here, but obviously in other countries like Brazil, India, and, and other countries as well. Um, and we know back then that Rishi Sunak in particular, the Chancellor, was heavily pushing against lockdown and invited to number 10 anti-lockdown scientists who had been discredited at every single juncture of the crisis, but they were given a platform and they had a big role in convincing Boris Johnson as well to delay the lockdown with catastrophic consequences. Rishi Sunak did it on the basis of defending the economy, but as we know, you allow a public health crisis to get out of control, you end up with the worst consequences for the government. So it was completely, uh, you know, self-defeating on its own terms. What do you think about that in terms of what, you know, the potential, I suppose, he's talking about lots of documents and emails that could be quite damning about that, about the lockdown. Yeah, I mean, he he may, we don't know what he has. He may have a kind of smoking gun that is very damaging for the Prime Minister. But in a sense, we don't really need Dominic Cummings to tell us that the Prime Minister and Rishi Sunak were reluctant to go into lockdown in the autumn and reluctant to go uh, this time last year into lockdown. We know we, we we heard, we saw with our own eyes, the Prime Minister saying that he was going around shaking everybody's hands and uh, in, in hospitals and he, we didn't need to go into immediate lockdown. So I think... It's, it's, I don't, don't want to sort of downplay the significance of Dominic Cummings too much, and he may well have some very damaging allegations. But also, I think there is a kind of credibility issue here with Dominic Cummings in that he is a sort of deeply unpopular figure in the country. His approval rating is something like minus 67. Um, 
and he has does have a, he does have a record of saying things which aren't necessarily backed up by the evidence. I mean, some in particular his claims about his own breach of lockdown and driving to Barnard Castle uh, to have an eye test, for example. Um, and Boris Johnson himself, of course, uh, has got a record. He was sacked twice for for lying. So you have these two public figures both of whom have been known to uh, breach the truth in the past, both making allegations about each other. And I think the danger is that the public just kind of switch off and whatever they thought about Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson before, they they still think about him now. Yeah, I mean, Dominic Cummings as well edited his blog to make it look like he'd uh, predicted no. the pandemic as well. Anyway, uh, but I mean, that, that last point that, I, I'm, that you just made, uh, you know, the polling today shows that about 40% of the electorate think the Tories are corrupt. The Tory lead has just gone up at the same time uh, they've got an 11 point lead which would deliver a pretty similar result to what i think we can all agree was a catastrophic route for the labor party back in december 2019 what does that tell us well it's i think it is it is significant that such a large chunk of the population believe that their prime minister is corrupt 37 percent that is a large it's a minority but it's a significant um, minorities. So I do think that that is important, but as you say, it doesn't seem to be translating into a reduction in Boris Johnson's own personal ratings and, and more importantly, the the headline voting intention in in the polls. However, what we do know is that these things do tend to be kind of lagging indicators, and these kind of uh, perception, the the kind of public perceptions of of governments do take a long time to change, and it is like an oil tanker, you know. Um, it will take a long time and the volume of these stories and the kind of range of these stories that are coming out week after week over time that may have an impact on how the public see Boris Johnson and in that same poll we saw that people do have a more favourable opinion uh, of the trustworthiness um, of Keir Starmer and again that hasn't translated into headline voting intentions but it may well do over time so I think it's possible but but I think I think the reason it hasn't changed so far is that the public already know that or already have this perception that politicians are in, in it for themselves. And this goes back, you know, not just to the expenses scandal, but, you know, way back into the 90s with the cash for questions. So there's been a sort of long running public perception that politicians are close to big business and are in it for themselves and are sort of profiting themselves. And I'm not sure that this current scandal has really is really doing anything more than kind of confirming people's already perceptions they've already got. Danger, that's the danger, obviously, isn't it? That fuels an anti-politics mood that rather than people yes, being... And, and Labour could end up being caught, caught up in it as well. I and mean, people look back at the new Labour years and there were similar stories about um, new Labour's uh, relationship with you know, the corporate world and lobbyists. And indeed, some of those figures are still around today and, and advising uh, Keir Starmer as well. Well, speaking of which, I mean, today, Paul Williams, the uh, Labour candidate in Hartlepool, has released a video of... Peter Mandelson, who is the former MP, to be fair, for Hartlepool. I mean, again, not the most popular politician in the country, if you're looking at the polling, Peter Mandelson. No. So I think you'd use Peter Mandelson as a, as an attempt to tap into votes you otherwise wouldn't be able to get. But, I mean, Peter Mandelson is obviously involved in that whole world of lobbying. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that in terms of well, labor attacks? I mean, this question came up in, in a briefing with Keir Starmer's advisers uh, last week, and they refused to be drawn on the relationship between Keir Starmer and, and Peter Manson. But of course, look, if you're making the central issue of your campaign in these local elections, conservative sleaze, um, and you're saying they're all in it together and you know questioning their uh, involvement with lobbyists, you've got to be cleaner than clean yourself. And uh, being involved with somebody like Peter Manson, who has his own interests and has his own record as, as we've just discussed 
it's not really the, the most advisable. And and there's pro- probably a, a, a relationship that Keir Starmer doesn't really need to be having at this time. Peter Madison, of course, had to resign twice from government. Let's yeah. not get... Yeah. Just on general, just a couple of general things. What, I mean, I mean, as I've said, the, the polling is not good for Labour and it has been gradually tanking. I mean, since November, now obviously what the Labour leadership is very keen to push is this is a vaccine uh, bounce. Though it is yeah. important to note that the decline, both the Keir Starmer and the Labour Party began before the rollout of the vaccination. And also today's poll shows the Tory lead going up, even though the Tory share of the vote has gone down. So it's more complicated because obviously the Labour vote, you know, if it was just a vaccine boost, it would just be a transfer presumably from Labour to Tory and that that's not happening. The Liberal Democrats, the Greens are also benefiting, for example. I mean, what what do you think about, you know, because what Labour, I suppose, did that they bet the house on was competence. Mm. Uh, new management was supposed to, you know, we're not Jeremy Corbyn, we're, more, we're competent in contrast to his administration and obviously in contrast to Boris Johnson as well. The vaccine rollout incinerated that really as a dividing line because if you go on incompetence, people will go, well, the vaccine rollout's gone well. So instead of going on values and vision, they went for competence, which which is blown away really. So what do you, I mean, what do you think is going wrong for Labour? What maybe what they're getting right, but what where where do you, why do you think they're not cutting through in the way they to be honest, they did expect, they thought with a grown up back in the room and things will fall into place and they haven't. Well, I think for a while it did work. The, the kind of competence angle did work for them. I think um, throughout most of last year um, that did work when the, the government's uh, COVID response was pretty catastrophic. It did have an effect in the polls and Labour did seem to benefit from that. But it was, it, I always found their strategy was quite passive. Um, you know, simply saying, oh, we should lock down sooner and then sort of congratulating themselves when, when Boris Johnson finally agreed to lock down uh, in November. I think that only takes you so far. You have to have uh, something that you're offering to vo- voters. And I think people gave Keir Starmer and the Labour Party the benefit of the doubt for, for a period after he became Labour leader. Uh, we're now sort of a year on and people are starting to look, actually, we've got these local elections coming up. People are actually looking saying, well, what are you offering? that is different from the current government. We, we, we understand what the government have done. We understand that things are getting better with the, with the vaccine rollout, but what are you actually offering that's that's different? And so far there's been very little. And also there's, there, there does seem to be this, um, I mean, we've seen a bit, they've been a bit more aggressive in the last couple of weeks over this lobbying scandal, but there has been this kind of um, reluctance uh, on on Labour's part to really sort of taking uh, taking the government on uh, opposing them, and there's 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 very sort of they, they seem almost timid to take on the, the government in Parliament and uh, in the wider world as well. And I think that's that we've seen that that's starting to have an effect now on the polls, where Labour's support is is starting to to go to other parties on the left and and also to the Conservatives as well. Finally, what do you think would be a good night for Labour in the elections? A week on Thursday, I'm going to Hartlepool myself tomorrow to do a video and uh, talk to some of the candidates. I uh, haven't heard back from Labour yet, which is hilarious, but I have the kids will see if they let me speak to Paul Williams. Slightly bizarre situation if they're now denying access to left to centre journalists. But anyway, um, what, 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 you know, what, it's not just Harley Paul. Actually, I think these are the biggest elections outside of a general election since the war, because obviously we have the elections from last year, uh, which were delayed, including in London. So we have Scotland, we have uh, mayoralties, we have local elections, we have Wales. Uh, what do you think a good result might be for Labour? And what would a bad result look like? And and leading on to that, if it does go badly, how much do you think there are genuine murmurings of discontent 
in the parliamentary Labour Party, after my own soundings, but I'm interested in your own uh, thoughts on that. You know, how secure do you think his leadership actually is in the months ahead if it, if it doesn't go well? Well, look, we've, we've had the Conservatives in, in power uh, since, in one form or another, since uh, 2010. You would expect at this stage for an opposition party, particularly under a renewed leader, who had a honeymoon uh, period to be making substantial gains in these, these kinds of elections. Um, I think it's it's more likely than not that the Labour will make some gains, but I, I suspect they will probably be fairly underwhelming but, uh, compared to what they, they you would expect at this kind of period in the electoral cycle. Um, if they actually don't make gains or they make losses and uh, they lose the, the by-election by in Hartlepool, that's going to be pretty disastrous um, there's been there's been some attempts to kind of manage expectations about that but it, there's there's no real way around that that would be a disastrous result for for labor and do you think i mean just finally do you think there are any there's any sense of maneuverings going on in the parliamentary labor party i think by and large labor mps he's uh, kiss is still very popular with labor mps there are some um including uh, among some of his his supporters some of the people who backed him to be leader who have become increasingly uncomfortable with what they see as his reluctance to to go on the front foot against the the government, and also there there is some murmurings about his reluctance to speak out on the issue of Brexit, which of course he was closely associated with in in the past. But he's he, he him and his team seem incredibly reluctant to to talk about now. So th- there are murmurings, but whether or not, I don't really think that they they really are much beyond that. I don't think there are any sort of serious considerations of, of ousting him as leader at this point that's great really really appreciate it do follow adam bienkov on social media and his brilliant articles which are always very very insightful and thoughtful and uh and and very educational so thank you honestly adam really appreciate it very short notice on a sunday and i look forward to seeing you maybe in real life for pint at some point you too take Just- care buddy take care Great. That was, I think, very, very comprehensive indeed. Brilliant guest who gave us uh, a huge amount of insight into what's going on. Um, now, as I've said, I'm going to Hartlepool tomorrow. Uh, well, it depends when you're listening or watching, I suppose. But I'm going on Monday. Uh, I'm going to be speaking to a range of people uh, from uh, the Reform Party candidate, who is obviously the Continuity Brexit Party, to the North... <laughs> No, I don't know. I'm not laughing. It's just an interesting phenomenon. The Northern Independence Party. Obviously, we've interviewed their founder on on the channel and the podcast. But what I'm also doing is talking to people on the ground. And what I'm interested in, and I think this is in you know important when we're looking at what happened in the so-called Red Wall, which is often spoken about without getting a bit chippy as a plastic northerner, by lots of southern-based journalists who I think sometimes not all, some great journalists from the South, but there's a bit of a kind of going on safari on the North, isn't there? In the North kind of vibe uh, amongst some. Um, and that's to make it this, you know, the, the Red Wall is this homogenous entity, um, which of course it isn't. And it's complicated what's happened in those seats because, um, you know, if you take Hartlepool, Hartlepool in 2015 became a very marginal seat. Uh, that was obviously when Ed Miliband was leader, a very bad election result for Labour in 2015. And and Hartlepool became a marginal uh, and it had a very big then UKIP vote. But in 2017, what was interesting is Hartlepool was one of the seats that the Tories at the beginning of the general election 
People thought Theresa May could walk on water. She, you know, the whole world was before her. She had very, very high approval ratings, not least in those seats. And they looked at the UKIP tally from 2015 and thought, well, they're just going straight to the Conservatives. And that's why seats like Hartlepool will fall into the lap of the Conservatives. That didn't happen in 2017. What did happen in lots of those seats is the Tory vote went up, but so did the Labour Party vote. And what happened in Hartlepool, actually, is uh, the Labour Party won the biggest majority in vote share since 2001, when Labour won a national landslide. Uh, and that was because a lot of the UKIP vote actually transferred over to the Labour Party. Now, in 2019, a lot of those voters then went to the Brexit Party, uh, which got a very big vote. And it went back to being like in 2015, a marginal. But I should say it wasn't, it's still not as marginal as it was in 2015. So actually, you know, a lot of people go, well, uh, you know, well, the only reason Labour kept the seat back in 2015, um, uh, sorry, in 27, yeah, 2019 was because of the Brexit Party who split the anti-Labour vote. But actually, a lot of those were Labour voters uh, who voted for Labour under Jamie Corbyn in 2017 uh, and obviously went off him and the Labour Party. Uh, but equally, Jamie Corbyn inherited Hartlepool as a marginal seat and increased the vote share in 2017 and still managed to keep it on a better vote share than 2015 in 2019. So I suppose, you know, if Keir Starmer loses that seat, and I think it's unlikely, by the way, I think it's very important to say that because oppositions just don't lose by-elections. It's only happened twice in the last 50 years. Labour have a very good get-out-the-vote campaign. Uh, and I think the Slee stuff will filter in. It might depress some of the Tory vote so it doesn't come out and vote. Um, but actually, obviously which shouldn't be in question. It's a by-election. I mean, in by-elections, opposition is supposed to do better than general elections. So it would, really would be terrible if Labour lost that seat. But I am interested in the trends. So what's happened in places like Hartlepool, and we often talk about this as a class issue, but actually it's, it's so much to do with age and generation because in seats like Hartlepool, the number of people over 65 has massively increased in the last uh, 20, 30 years. And the number of people under... Uh, 25 younger people has decreased and that's often because there isn't often the jobs there for them so they go elsewhere they take their labor votes with them and they vote labor often in safe labor seats chatting to someone who left Hartlepool who's 25 who lives in Leeds uh, they vote labor they're not voting labor in Hartlepool and then you often get older homeowners who are sometimes relatively affluent I mean that's the other point this idea of the red wall just being this you know, a sea of deprivation is, is not true. You've got actually suburbs, suburbs there with, you know, gated communities and so on, new builds where people are relatively well off. So I think it's an interesting picture. So I want to look at the complexities, you know, not to do a video, which is poverty porn, but actually to look at the complexities of communities like Hartlepool, what it all means for labor going forward, whoever's leader, because these are underlying trends that have been going on for a very long time under new labor, Ed Miliband, Corbyn and now Starmer. So I want to I want to be really rigorous and, and do a really thoughtful video. But you make those videos possible. We pay a brilliant videographer on a union wage to film and edit it. And that's how we did the COVID-19 catastrophe uh, documentary. It's how we've done documentaries about um, everything from anti-lockdown protesters to businesses that have profited from COVID-19. You make that possible on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. So we really appreciate it. Leave a review uh, and five stars if you want to encourage other people to listen to the podcast too. Uh, we've got loads of interviews. Now, last week we interviewed, uh, I would say, a range of people. Uh, we interviewed uh, Robert Lindsay and Jamie Carragher. Do check out those interviews. 
And next week, we are interviewing um, a range of people, uh, including Lord Buckethead, not joking, um, two uh, brilliant American journalists and pundits to talk about Joe Biden and the United States. Uh, we are also talking to, let me bring up, we're talking to Hanan Ashrari, who is a senior Palestinian politician about what's going on in Palestine at the moment. Uh, some horrendous scenes the other day of extremists from Israel uh, marching through occupied Palestine, yelling death to Arabs um, and attacking Palestinian civilians. So we're going to be talking about the situation uh, there as well. Uh, so we've got, a very, as I said, a very diverse range of things. Uh, but we also have our show next Sunday at 12 o'clock as ever. That is all for me and for my brilliant guests. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, and thank you for making this channel possible. As I say, do subscribe, like, and I will see you very soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.